at chapter 1, at verses 14 to 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Very nice to see you. And um, I can't see those of you online, obviously, but believing you're there, I'm glad that you are. Uh, it's so hot this morning that, um, let me just say, I won't be in the least bit put off if you want to get up and go over where there's some cold drinks over there and pick it up during the talk. Uh, that's very understandable. Let's pray that God will speak to us. Father God, thank you for your presence with us this morning. And we would pray that you'd help us to focus on you. Come and speak into our lives, we pray, and help me as I speak to lift you up, Lord Jesus. Amen. This is the second talk that I'm giving in a series about discoveries which change life for good. Discoveries which change life for good. And they're all focusing on various parts of Mark's gospel. I'm sure we're used to the concept of famous last words. You probably have got some famous last words in your memory bank. Uh, hopefully not stored away to use yourself. Um, kind of last words that I remember, and I wonder if you know who said them. Uh, I told you I was ill. Very good. Okay, you're on a roll here. This wallpaper is terrible. One of us must go. That was Oscar Wilde, apparently. And slightly more upmarket, all my possessions for a moment of time. Elizabeth I. Well, uh, famous last words, we're used to that, but famous first words is different. And it's Jesus' first words on the public stage that we're going to look at this morning. Now, those who are astute will know that they're not the first recorded utterance of Jesus that Luke records for us uh, that the boy Jesus was found in the temple when his parents left him behind by mistake. And we know about that conversation. But what we're looking at today is Jesus's first words spoken out in a public arena. And I think there's every reason to think that he gave serious thought as to what he was going to say. And the reason I think it, they wouldn't be impromptu is because Jesus himself says that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. Well, that puts a little bit of pressure on you to say something worth saying, doesn't it? And this is what he decides to say. I'm going to read it because it's very, very short. And all we're looking at today is just two verses. 
After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I am so grateful to have the opportunity to luxuriate with you in these two verses because I think they could act for us today as a kind of spiritual pick-me-up. Um, if you watch athletes playing in their sport, you know, tennis or cricket even, and um, rugby, you'll see people run onto the pitch in some of those games and they give them an energy drink. And um, back in the day, you know, it, was, it was all very low-tech and you know, those playing tennis would, would be apparently drinking squash, but today there's no way that goes on. They're drinking all kinds of, well, it looks horrible, but it apparently does some good. And um, this could be for us spiritual reinvigoration. And my goodness, we need it. Because the background noise, and actually it's sort of moved into the foreground. Certainly if you read the Times newspaper, it's moved into the foreground. The noise about the Church of England in particular, the way the Times tells it, is so depressing. And they did a survey of various clergy. Um, actually, uh, only about 30% of the people they surveyed responded. So you really can't draw the conclusions, but they did draw huge conclusions. And one of the things they said, which is factually true, and is, I think, depressing, is a miserable 1% of people up and down this land chose to go to church on any particular Sunday in 2019. I mean, that, that is a, pr a pretty appalling figure. And they extrapolated from there to say that um, such is the decline and irrelevance of the Church of England, it really ought to be marginalised and everything connected to it should be kicked into touch. So having bishops in the House of Lords is, is an anachronism, that kind of attack. And their various articles concluded with these words, if it's to avoid irrelevance, the Church would be wise to embrace the liberal instincts of its clergy and the country. Well, I just want to say, if the wheels of the church have come off, uh, my chosen task this morning is to put them back on. And I'm, I'm hoping to uh, speak into the situation and furnish us with four wheels that will keep us going in the right direction. Frankly, if something stops working, you do well to refer to the maker's instructions. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And looking at what Jesus says, uh, here's the very first point. His opening words, now is the time for action. Now is the time for action. The time has come. Now, I don't often try and pull the wool over your eyes by referring to Greek, because I think that's a bit uh, unfair. But in Greek, there are actually two words for time. And one of those words is a very casual word, and, and it doesn't mean anything particular, it's just a time. So, in the famous poem, uh, The Warus and the Carpenter, the time has come, the warus says, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings. That's any old time will do. But there's another word where the word time means, this is a very specific, marked out, intentional, deliberate time. And that's the word that 
Jesus is using. And he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. This is God's decisive moment in history. So watch out and wake up, is what he's saying. Something very particular is taking place in front of you, says Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. In fact, the king who rules the kingdom, e.g. Jesus, has come near. Now, please notice, I'm going to read those two verses again. And just notice with me the amount of times that the words good news comes up. Because I think this is the first surprising discovery that God and good news goes together. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. But time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And for many people, they're not for many of us here in this building this morning because you've discovered what God is really like, but for many people, many of your friends, the idea that God and good news goes together will be very, very surprising because they don't think like that. The preconception is much more like this. No, 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 God and boredom go together or God's arrival and if I let him near my life, will be a requirement to live a dull life, together with a list of things I really oughtn't to do. Or there's a preconditioned idea that God will always be just a little bit out of reach, however long my reach. God and searching for something you can't quite meet go together. But that's not in Jesus' announcing message at all. He, He says, no, not at all. Now is a significant time because the king of kings, the kingdom, has come close, is breaking out now. And it's a good time to talk about it. Well, of of course, I recognize Jesus spoke those words over 2,000 years ago. And you might well want to ask me, look, it might have been true for Jesus, but that was 2,000 years ago. Surely that time has come and that time has gone. What about for us? And I would say, no, no. In biblical terms, in a Bible frame of reference, which I'll explain, then we're in the same time zone as Jesus. And that is the last days. This is quite difficult to get your head around until it's explained and you can live with it for a bit. But in The way the Bible works, basically, when Jesus comes, something new happens. The kingdom of God begins to break in. And you see that as Jesus walks around and really people's lives change around him. He speaks truth, he throws out darkness, he heals the sick, and he proclaims that God's kingdom has come. And then he dies upon the cross And then he's raised again. And we are in the last days waiting for him to return. And no one knows, only the father knows, when Jesus will return. But when he returns, then everything will be in obedience to the king. And you'll see his sovereignty if you're alive, or whoever is alive will see that he is the undisputed king. But ever since he stood up that day, and said the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has been advancing, but it's disputed territory, and we live in those times.
and the conditions are the same for us as they were for him. We live in the last days and we still need to be saying the kingdom has come near. See the king. Meet the king. When you lift up Jesus, who is the king of kings, you begin to see the kingdom come. I want to highlight a little verse that for years and years I overlooked, and I wonder if you have too. It, it, it's a, a little aside almost that Mark gives in chapter 9 of his gospel. And he's just talked about a transfiguration, which obviously is a huge event. Jesus and his closest disciples up the mountain and Jesus is transfigured. And I'm, I know, you know our attention is grabbed by that. And then you'll know he comes down the mountain and he walks straight into a dispute. His disciples are being asked by a father of a child, please can you cast demons out of my child because my child is damaged and, and is in danger and I really need help. And we're told that there's a bit of an argy-bargy around what goes on and Jesus has to get involved. And every time I've read Mark's gospel, I've, my eyes have gone from one big event, transfiguration, to the other big event, and I've missed out somehow the couple of sentences in between. And they're just descriptive sentences. But I'm going to read it to you because I think they warm my heart as to what happens when we lift up Jesus. Coming down the mountain, Peter, James and John and Jesus. And Mark says, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. Don't you love that? As soon as people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. They ran towards him. And, and friends, that's exactly what happens when people come in proximity to Jesus, through you, through me, through the Holy Spirit. Very often we're surprised because he isn't what we thought he'd be. He isn't boring, he isn't out of reach. He, he isn't inscrutable. He isn't unkind. Quite the opposite. As you lift Jesus up, you will see that people want to run towards him. This is an essential wheel on the car. If you want to see life return, we have to do that. Lift Jesus up. And I might have told you before that uh, a conversation that I, I remember so well is when I was working in a different part of a country and... I was at a social event and someone asked me the question which frankly as a vicar I dread, uh, what do you do for a living? That kind of question. And, and it, it, it never goes well, well it very rarely goes well when you say I'm, I'm a vicar. They normally say, oh God, and then they go, oh, what have I just said? And, and there has to be kind of recovery. And uh, anyhow, this person did recover, sort of. And then they came in with round two which was, you're not one of those Jesus churches, are you? To which, of course, I said, yes, of course we are. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be any other kind. As you lift Jesus up, people will be filled with wonder and want to run towards him. So the newspapers might be saying to themselves and to us, with 99% of people now skipping church, it's time for the church to pipe down. But I want to tell you, no, it's time for Christians to speak up and live it up to show people and help them come to meet the king.
When the church loses its bottle, it's a sure sign that we've lost touch with Jesus. Actually, it was pretty gratifying what happened during the week that the Times published its rather condemning survey. They did have enough integrity to publish quite a few letters that were written to them in response. And I'll just read out one, which is kind of representative of many. Sir, it was depressing to read that clergy want significant changes in teaching to bring the church more in line with public opinion. If Jesus, the apostles and the early church had done that, the Christian faith wouldn't have survived beyond the first century. Thankfully, the countercultural gospel they proclaimed challenged public opinion and churches that remained faithful to the biblical message rather than public opinion have often grown rather than declined. And friends, I think that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things that God has been doing in our country and actually all around the world, he's, he's almost been doing it uh, sort of in secret, but in an open secret. And, and that would be the Alpha course. Now, of course, the Alpha course is, is not the only way of reaching out to our friends. But whereas in the past, you can talk to very many people and they'll talk about big rallies in places like Harringay and Wembley, where Billy Graham came to speak. And, and there's a whole generation in this country, certainly, that owes their liveliness in their Christianity to meeting God through a Billy Graham rally. But what's been going on in more contemporary times has often taken place in people's sitting rooms, in, in small buildings, little gatherings of people, often under 12 people at a time, and they meet and they watch a video, or they watch a YouTube um, thing, and, and we do it here, the Alpha Course, and it's just, I think the brilliance of it is it's just a series of opportunities to look into the mainstream things of a Christian faith, basically to bring people into the orbit of the person of Jesus and to have a discussion and then people make up their own mind. It's not heavy handed in any way. And the chances are that you know all about that and, and it would be very easy. In fact, I find myself sometimes sort of saying, isn't this a little bit passe? Um, you know, we've done Alpha so many times, I can't believe it, are we going around this again? And, and the reason we, we go around it again is because there are still so many, so many, so many people that you know and I know who haven't come in contact with Jesus. And they've never heard of the Alpha Course either. And this is as good a vehicle as we can yet find to help people towards him. I do think that there is a prevalent assumption on behalf of many of my friends, and perhaps your friends too, that goes like this. Number one, no one goes to church these days, do they? And number two, if they do go to church, they're weird. And one of the reasons that we're hosting an invitation supper here in the church building on Wednesday, the 27th of September, one of the reasons that we're hosting this supper is so we can invite our friends just to have a good evening. So they can come in and they can, they will just absorb the fact, the sight, gosh, more than three and a half people come to church these days. And I'm believing with a great deal of faith they will also absorb the fact we're not weird. 
but you may think otherwise. But I've got confidence in that. So one of the things that I, I would be saying to us is, if you can come on Wednesday the 27th to supper, with or without a friend, please come, because I want any guests we have to meet you. I want them to see that uh, we're a wonderful group of people with lots of stories to tell. And of course, if you've got some friends who know that, they probably know that you're a follower of Christ, this would be a very easy step towards finding out more. And I, I shall be giving a talk, um, pretty much the same talk I gave last year, on is Christianity worth a second thought? And the reason I repeat the talk is because some of you heard it last year and you didn't think it was too bad. And uh, you thought it was actually uh, very low cringe and quite high in content. And that's what we need. We need just to bring our friends a step closer. And there will be an Alpha course actually starting here on October the 10th, so there will be time for them to sign up for that. But what I've covered so far is now is the time and Jesus is the person. But there are two more things Jesus says and I want to just highlight them before I come to a close. If you like, they're the other wheels on the bus. Repent and believe the good news. That's the third and the fourth thing that Jesus says. And they're slightly harder to explain, I find, because this word repent sounds so old-fashioned, so old-school, and try as I might, it, it, it's got dark connotations. I, I kind of picture a guy walking down Oxford Street with a big placard on his head, and it, or above his head, saying, repent for judgment days around the corner, that kind of idea. And immediately, I, I, I'm cringing, and I don't think, well, I know that's not what the word repent means. Because the word repent, it seems so loaded as a religious word, I, I do try and find other ways of explaining it. Though actually, once you unpack it, it is a splendid word. It, it means really turn around, change your way of thinking, start a new life. And the moment someone says that, uh, there is a problem because everything inside us before get, God gets hold of us, frankly, rebels about that. I, I sat through many, many talks before I became a follower of Christ. And whenever we got to this kind of part of the talk, uh, actually, I, I would either turn off or I'd get incensed. Because the preacher seemed to be saying, I thought, which, whoever the preacher was, um, you need to start a new life. There's something very wrong with your own life. Get real and get with it. And I'd be thinking, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. I'm very, very content. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm happy with the way I'm doing life. My life seems rather fulfilled, as a matter of fact. And I don't think I've done anything wrong uh, or horrendous um, that needs to change. So I'm not on message with you. And, and the more they talked and the more loudly they talked, the more I turned off. It actually, the situation is rather like, and this is a bit of a grim parallel, but it's rather like what really did happen to a close friend of mine, and it may well have happened to some of your friends too. He was a man um, a little bit older than me, and unlike me, he was tremendously fit. He exercised regularly, he kept his weight down, he had no family history of any particular serious illness, and he went for a general checkup to his doctor. 
And you probably can guess where this story is going. The doctor took some blood tests, the results came back, didn't like the blood test results, said further investigations are going to be necessary. And my friend then went through all of those and they have a consultation and the doctor says to him, this is really difficult for me to tell you, Mark, but you are actually critically ill, probably terminally ill. You've got cancer. And he, he breaks it to him and sends him off with all sorts of facts and what should happen. And Mark goes back home and he's feeling completely fine. And he's so feeling fine, he just can't get this message into his head. So he books another appointment and he goes back, he told me this, and he, and he says to the doctor, there must have been a mix-up at the hospital with the tests, because I'm feeling just great. You know, some, this is a message you should be giving someone else. And the doctor has to explain in slow time, no, I, I'm afraid that's not the case. And sure enough, uh, actually, in, far too quickly, Mark was uh, critically ill and, and died. Mark's reaction is very much how we react to Jesus telling us that we're sick, that we need soul surgery, that we need help. We want to shrug it off and say, no, you, you, you must have mixed up the results. I'm enjoying my life. I'm comfortable in my own skin. And probably we feel like that. And, and the challenge is, how do we ever break out of that if the reality is that we're sick? And it does take two things to happen, I think. It, it takes the Holy Spirit to get at work in our hearts, but it also takes us to get close to Jesus. Because it's only when we see what perfection looks like that we begin to understand how far we are from that. It's a little bit as if I should, just before I came into the church this morning, should have taken a sheet of paper out of my printer, which calls itself Brilliant White, and brought it here, and I could hold it in front of you, and you'd say, yeah, that is Brilliant White until I might hold it against an absolutely pure white screen. And then you say, actually, it's rather grubby. And, and only God can open our eyes to see this. But when you get close to Jesus, you do see it. It reminds me a bit of Aesop's fable of um, the wind and the sun trying to get a man to take his coat off. And when the wind blows, the guy just hugs his coat tighter. And I think, you know, shouting at a congregation or trying to berate you with how you are in need of God's forgiveness and starting a new life will only make you hug your old life closer. But if you were to start to read about the life of Jesus and how he does life, how kind he is, how forgiving he is, how generous he is, how perfect he is, how loving he is, then God might open your eyes and like the disciples, you end up saying, Depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful person. The gap between my way of doing life and yours is so different. And Jesus would say to us, actually, yes, things do need to change in your life, but you don't need to depart from me. I want you close to me. I, I want us to be friends and building the kingdom together. And, and what, it, what is humbling about this is it's something that you do more than once in your life. Any time that you ask God to review your life with you, he will, by his kindness, say, well, I love you, Rupert, or I love you, whatever your name is, but this aspect of your life, you know, we need to work on this together because you're letting me down in this department. 
But more than the fact you're letting me down, you're letting yourself down in this department. It's, it's trapping you. You need to be able to start a new life. And you know, there are plenty of people, we, we, we exist the world over that God has shown this to. Um, in all walks of life, in all stages of life, there are some people who are actually in prison and ashamed of the mess that they've made of their lives. And God has stepped in and said, we can start life again together. And there are some people who are hugely successful in the world's eyes, but in their own hearts, they know they too are imprisoned by all sorts of habits that they wish were not there. All sorts of thoughts that they wish could be cleansed. All sorts of attitudes. And God says, Jesus says, I can help you. I can help you. Come on. Let's start again. That is really what the word repentance means. Start again. Come under my lordship. Repent and believe. And the belief bit means, and trust me. And trust me. Turn around and trust me now. And the chances are, you know, many of us sitting here, um, we think we do trust God. We think we do believe. But actually, there are crisis moments when you really know you have to believe. And then, so like the day I got carted off to hospital and they told me they were about to put me on a ventilator and I might not wake up. I think that was a pretty obvious moment where I had to know if I trusted God or not. But actually, opportunities come every day to discover if I trust Jesus or not. So when you decide to forgive someone, uh, you'll discover then if you trust him or not. When you decide to pray, you'll discover if you trust him or not. When you decide to tithe and to uh, give to God's service 10% of your salary, you'll decide, you'll discover if you trust him or not. And so on and so on and so on. As, as I close, just a, a couple of words of, for clarity's sake. Regret is not the same as repentance. Uh, it's very easy to regret things that we do wrong. But repentance is actually saying to God, I own my mistakes, which is incredibly rare. Very rarely does someone put their hand up and say, I'm in this mess because I've made a hash of life. But repentance requires that honesty and then God can move to forgiveness. And as I've been trying to say, repentance is a gateway to freedom. It, it sounds a tough word, but it's actually a freeing word. Through repentance, we can get shot of greed, self-centeredness, anxiety and worry and hard-heartedness, etc., etc. And the second thing of clarity as I get to the end is admiration for Jesus is not enough. Interest in Jesus is not enough. He calls for surrender. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray.